Crack, and you're listening to Molly Huddle, Alicia Montano, and Roisin McGettigan-Dumas. We want to highlight the important topics, inspiring stories, and amazing women in sport. We're three Olympians from two countries, two moms, and one current pro coming together to talk about issues we're passionate about in the sports world. And we care about the current and future landscape of women's sports. And this is just how we're keeping track. This episode is a packed one. We have a longer catch-up today as we discuss the topic of race in the running world and hear from our guest. She is an activist, an author, a counselor, a mom, and an endurance runner, Allison Dazier. We give you a solid reading list. I think we recommend about five books in this show and have the sometimes awkward but productive discussion about running while black and the whiteness of the U.S. running community. We wanted to do more than posting a hashtag to call attention to the race issues precipitating the murder of Ahmad Arbery while he was out running, and we discuss ways to cultivate awareness and what actions can be taken as allies to BIPOC in this framework. We will roll over to the catch-up now, but first, we wanted to mention we have some new fundraising efforts. Thanks to everyone who bought a Keeping Track t-shirt, and on May 29th, we are selling tank tops. They'll be great for summer, and all proceeds will go to And Mother, the new nonprofit founded by our amazing Alicia Montano, whose mission is to offer extra support for women who choose to thrive in both their career and motherhood. Thanks for keeping track. Welcome back, everyone. We're here on Keeping Track with episode 20. I have Roshi McGettigan and Alicia Montano here. Um, we have a very relevant and pertinent episode for you this week. Um, and first, we are going to check in with each other. How are you ladies doing? Um, I feel like I always just jump in because I'm like, what time is my son going to wake up? <laughs> <laughs> I'm doing so much better. <laughs> I think my last ones were like frantic. I don't know. I don't know. Maybe it said that. Maybe it didn't. Maybe that was my subconscious mind. I feel good. Um, Lennox is um, 12 weeks. He's um, getting ready to hit that three-month mark, which was like technically, air quotes everyone, out of the newborn stage, but so much easier to schedule things. It's just literal torture to try to schedule in the first three months of a child being born. And still even, like, let's not even say three months, like, you know, it still isn't super solid for like six months, you know? Um, it's the fourth trimester. It just uh, is. It just it is. It just is. It's, it's so, so hard. Yeah. So um, I'm happy to be out of that. I'm happy to have, you know, baby blues behind me and I feel like rejuvenated. I am still sad to be in freaking isolation or whatever we're doing. This whole pandemic is still daunting and difficult. And um, yeah, but we're getting there, and so yeah. And you're getting I some runs in. I see you did a three I'm, mile run, some hill repeats, real workouts. I, I am, I am. Lou's making fun of me because I stop my Strava when I warm up, <laughs> and he's like, "You saved like I feel like um, I feel like a mom on Strava, like you know, just like stop." And then he's like, "You've got like a 1.7 warm up, and like you didn't record your whole workout." <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I'm still learning it. Everybody who's following me on Strava, like, what are you doing? Uh, <laughs> but yes, yes, I am doing it. I think uh, my best run I, I'm working on, and this is still part of the difficulty of doing this Alicia entrepreneurship in, you know, during a pandemic with three kids at home, is um, <laughs> I'm trying to write my 12 week, you know, how to get to running in like consistently in 12 weeks um not saying you have to do it 12 weeks but it's just how I did it um and so I just did my first 
30 minute long run, just not Woo-hoo! long run. It's not a long run, everybody, mm-hmm. but it, for postpartum, it is a long run, but consistently with no stops and feeling good. So yeah. um, I'm looking forward to sharing that. Now my, my goal is to consistently be able to run 30 minutes for at least a four week period of time before I can do some like real workouts. So 2021. Oh Lord, here she is. <laughs> <laughs> I just, I'm like, I like, think of you as like I knew you more as like a competitor than a friend so mm-hmm. I always loved your running and your racing so I like your personality as well but I'm like yeah. and I love the way you race I love watching performances so I'm like come on come back come back for 2021 oh thank you, you. my Sasha Fierce three kids <laughs> mm-hmm. and like killing it in the world well, go on get back yeah. and running as well There's a lot of opportunity for opportunity. (laughs) So who knows what happens? (laughs) Molly, how's your world in AZ? We're good. We are plotting our return to Rhode Island. Um, So, yeah, we're like Alicia said, we're still kind of half in this. Technically, our state has opened up, but it doesn't mean that I would feel comfortable just like going free and doing things. You know, we still have Mm -hmm. to be cautious. So I think we may do a little cross country camping trip (laughs) to get back home. Mm -hmm. Um, We're plotting that. And yeah, I just did my first workout back today, a little temple run. So that was painful, (laughs) but good. You like to make progress. Yeah, I love it. A bit of hard work, Molly. How did you love it? Really? Let's be honest. I did. I loved it. There you yeah. go. <laughs> love the I love it. That's awesome. I love it. I'm, I'm excited for your cross country trip because it's something I like dying to do with my my children once it's fun uh, for me. Yeah, I'll send you the pictures of the tent we got. You guys need to get one. Okay, I love it. Is this say you're gonna buy a camper or something? It like or straps to the top of the car, so you sleep on top. It's a whole setup. It's Ooh. a whole thing. What type of car do you drive? So we have a Subaru Forester down here, but I think we're going to rent one so we don't have to drive all the way back. Ah, got it. Yeah. Got it. And Ro, entrepreneur mom, got two, <laughs> two kids at home, pregnant with baby number three. What is going on in your world? Yeah. So like as a, as a mom of all that, with all those things, it's good to kind of like slow down that question and check in. And I've been doing that for the last, month or so where just like taking that minute to like how am I doing Mm -hmm. what am I doing you could call it meditation you could call it whatever you want but it's my time to just like yeah where am I at and really starting to connect to myself a little bit more in that um but so when you ask me that now it's like I'm like I could give you the surface answer or I could take a minute to really feel into it but I'll give you the surface answer since (sighs) we're time (laughs) no but uh no things are busy and hanging in there um working on some stuff in Ireland with the, the my program over there, I Dare to Believe, and we're going to be on Irish TV next week, so I'm Woo-hoo. excited for that, yes, um, and loving work and loving seeing you guys, and wish I could, I'm missing people though, I'm really having dreams about giving people hugs and things like that, it's starting to really be that physical piece that I'm missing, um, the screens are only satisfying to a certain extent, um, or a little bit. <laughs> You're not even. Yeah, yeah I would not even. Satisfying. <laughs> I am, but um, otherwise good and excited about this conversation today. Um, how Alison was an amazing guest. So very um, feel like it's a topic. Obviously, we wanted to do this topic right, and like you, I don't want it to just be over in a week and a hashtag. We want to know how do we how do we 
big change in this area. So, yeah, let's talk about yeah, that. Yeah, so, so we talked to Allison Desir. Um, she is um, an activist, a endurance athlete, a mom, um, and she brought a lot of attention to the running world about mm-hmm. the um, killing of Ahmad Arbery. And, you know, that went two months relatively quiet in the running world before she brought light to that and opened up a really important conversation and some important awarenesses. Um, mm-hmm. So I thought it was a really uh, enlightening conversation. Um, and, you know, it deals with some important topics, pertinent topics, somewhat uncomfortable topics. But I, I think, you know, this is a good conversation to put out there. Mm-hmm. Totally. I Listening to Allison speak is totally different from um, reading what she wrote. And both are so, um, they are just so enlightening. I think just the way that she is able to write for me was, I can't believe she was able to put her words out there like that. I have been struggling to figure out what my words do on paper, but being able to speak to her and have a back and forth while we talk about that was just something else for me. I mean, reading it is if you guys felt compelled to like listen more and to do more by reading, listening to her is going to um, do even more for you. I, I hope. (laughs) Um, So we got to dive in on, on some of these topics and I just wanted to kind of just point out, what I, I talk about within the show is just, again, like this has been so a space that we've, people of color, black and brown people, BIPOC people have been experiencing for a long time. You know, luckily um, I haven't been shot dead for doing something that is so normal to um, everyone else, you know, Um and so I think there's a couple of things that we talked about. I just want to kind of lead with this a little bit and we can keep talking about it. It's just, she, uh, Allison talked about an Instagram handle. I talked about the kids because I really do think that we always say, you know, starts with our children. What starts with our children? What we, you know, giving them the confidence and, you know, instilling in them bravery and letting them know sometimes hard things happen, but you can come out the other side and, you know, how to be victorious and a champion and so many facets of life. And if you win some, you lose some. But one of the things that's a hard topic that when we talk about our kids is how do we also teach our kids to recognize a privilege that they have? In this case, we're talking about white privilege and what can they do about it? And she talked about the Instagram handle, The Conscious Kid, whom I love following so much. Um, if you guys follow The Conscious Kid, uh, um, yeah, The Conscious Kid, at The Conscious Kid, mm-hmm. there are so many ways that not only just if you have kids, but for you know, people who are trying to recognize their privilege, what you can do, how you can see it, how you can read it. And one of the things that's so crazy that's happening on the Instagram handle is their content is getting deleted by Instagram. And this is exactly the point of use, like white supremacy. I know people cringe at the word white supremacy. Yeah, can we actually, we use yeah. the term a lot. Can we ex- mm-hmm. differentiate that from like neo-Nazis, which I think people think of <laughs> when they hear exactly. white supremacy. And it isn't mm-hmm. that. It is how... Mm-hmm. Um, Allison describes it as white is the baseline in our society. Mm -hmm. It's the structure of our society. That's what that term refers to. It's a fact. It's just Mm -hmm. what we're socialized in. Yep. That's a fact. And so like you think of the word, what does supremacy mean? What is supreme? You know, it's like the normal white is normal. Everything else is like, you know what I'm saying? It's Um, it's other. Yeah. It's other. Right. So um, she put in, again, she put up another thing. I'm worried about it kind of getting pulled down, but I want to say this on this podcast. Um, she says, 
a guide to white privilege. And it's these things. There are five points on it. I'm just going to say it really quick because I know, you know, for the sake of time. But she says, white privilege doesn't mean your life hasn't been hard. It means your skin tone isn't one of the things making it harder. There's plenty of other privileges, socioeconomic, male, heterosexual, cisgender, Christian, able-bodied. But white privilege is perhaps the most enduring throughout our history. Number two, white privilege exists as a direct result of both historic and enduring racism, biases, and practices designed to oppress people of color. And then there's like a scale. So if you saw it, it'd be a person of color, slavery, um, uh, three-fifths person, segregation, rebuilding uh, black codes, police brutality, racism. And then there's a centerpiece that's on a teeter-totter that says burden through history. And then it has you on the top still with all that. I was weighed um, down by that. Us, I'm saying black people, people, of brown people, people of color. Um, and then it says hardships. You, most likely you. Yeah, you still have hardships and there are things to acknowledge, but just based on skin tone. Um, three, white privilege means you are active, you actively benefit from oppression of people of color that's just and there's little things in there i won't take too much time to say that um inherent um inherited power and wealth things like that you know you don't get harassed for existing in public locations you are the dominant representation in all of the media um products are designed for you um band-aids you know it's like that's a big one for me um people Mm. at work look like you and your actions aren't perceived as those of all your race. So like, you know, we often, black people, people of color, we get brushed with a broad brush, especially in the media when it's like, all of these crimes are being committed by black people, you know, um, or, you know, brown people, you know, we need to, they're all doing the same thing, they, they, they. And it's like these negative images of what Mm -hmm. we are doing. Um, Four, systemic racism exists at every level of society. And then it talks about the wealth gap. You know, black graduates are two times more likely to be unemployed, Um, you know, more, there's more. So just follow them. And then five is what should I do with my white privilege? And there's four bullet points is teach other white folks the barriers to success for people of color. Promise to listen to and amplify the voices of people of color. Be more than not racist, but actively anti-racist. And lastly, confront racial injustices, even when it's uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. And that's what we're trying to do in part with this episode by just elevating this conversation and giving Allison a platform to do this work, which it is work for her. You know, this is something she has to put emotional energy and time into explaining over and over again. Um, and she's taking on the task because she knows it's important. Um, and yeah, can we just talk a little bit about are just some brief impressions we had with the conversation. I know, Alicia, we were talking about how, you know, going into this interview, I was nervous because I didn't want to be the quote unquote dumb question asker, dumb white lady, something like that. And you pointed out that, that it's important to, you know, not be afraid of the awkwardness and to still do do this because it's valuable to have the conversation, you know, on a podcast that people are going to listen to and show allyship in any way that you can and learn that you know let it be a teachable moment if it's a bad question and then you go forward from there you you listen adapt and go forward yeah it's not not a reason to avoid these conversations I don't want to mess up or I don't want to expose some implicit bias that I'm I would hate to identify that I have done something like that I wouldn't identify as a racist but yet we're like afraid to like even 
you know, put yourself in that position that somebody might be like, actually, that was insensitive or that was wrong, a wrong thing to ask. Actually, by doing that, we learn that those things are wrong things to ask, right? And can we get more comfortable, like actually going there and asking those questions? And if they say, actually, that was, that wasn't a great, you know, the way you came across there or whatever, that's actually good. That's what you're saying. Mm -hmm. Like, do you, do you one would you like to see more people do that Alicia as well like do you think that's what's needed yeah like, absolutely I I've, I've I think I said this in our I can't I can't tell if we talked about it as friends or <laughs> if we said it up in the podcast but um I think one of the big things to just recognize is like being uncomfortable is a part of living able to make changes you know mm. what I mean? So you have to, yes. we've been, you know, curves. people of color, black, brown people, by POC people, we have been uncomfortable and we continue to be uncomfortable all of the time. And we do anyway, we need for, um, our, you know, white people to be okay with being uncomfortable. That's the only way we're going to continue to move forward. And I think like, you know, I'm using the word continue to because I am an optimist and I, I think that we are trying more than ever to move forward. People have said years ago, oh, racism, like, I, I haven't seen that, especially in my profession. I saw 100% um, white supremacy in all of the places that I wanted to be. Um, it just seemed like there was n not just because I'm Alicia, like, oh, you know, you just try harder. Like, oh, it's because that's not interesting what you're doing. Oh, it's because this person was better. It's like, no, I'm actively being looked over because I'm black. It, there's no reason. There's no way I can deny that. Um, and yeah, so I just want for people to recognize, you know, white people to recognize, get OK with being uncomfortable you don't even have to be okay with making this a comfortable conversation mm -hmm. just be okay with being uncomfortable and talking about it we have to talk about it I'd said for a long time we talked about this on the phone as friends I'd said that for so much of my growing up and even now like I feel a you know the choke ball in your throat when you're talking about it my pits are sweating because I I have a subconscious about not making everybody else uncomfortable you know, all I grew up in a predominantly white area. I am in the running world. So, you know, naturally a lot of my, and I'm a middle distance runner, obviously classified as distance runner. So a lot of my friends are white people. And um, so a lot of times when these issues come up and I'm in my, my space, but also white places, I don't feel as comfortable talking about that being hard. Mm -hmm you know, mm -hmm. and because I'm, oh, I'm going to make them feel uncomfortable. We're going to have silence. Like, uh, mm -hmm. like, okay, we're just going to let it go. I shared about, and I didn't, I didn't share about it on the, on the podcast because I really wanted Allison to have all of the shine and time that she needed to have. But, you know, being in eighth grade and, uh, again, it's like the, the one black kid in my, my class, black girl, I think there was maybe two others actually, but, uh, um, winning Mrs. Millennium. You know, I won Mrs. Millennium in the, the, the year 2000. And uh, one of my friends, a white boy, had won Mr. Millennium. And I can't believe I'm about to admit this right now because this is so not appropriate. But they would do this thing every year where they'd put mistletoe over the winner. They'd announce the winners and we had to dance together and they'd put mistletoe over them. So it's like, oh, crud. Like, you know, you're in eighth grade, by the way. I'm like, 2000, everyone. 2000 kid. I think whole another topic. Hold another yeah, topic. This, we can talk yeah, about. We can talk about this. I think this would be like, like right away now. 
But um, they put the mistletoe over us, and he kissed me. And uh, it right at that moment, there was a loud, someone loudly said, I can't believe he kissed that nigger. And I froze. He froze. And I didn't know what to do. I was like, how many people feel uncomfortable right now? Obviously, this is me. I'm this person called me a nigger. Mm-hmm. I, I am uncomfortable. I, and I look around and I'm seeing my friends like, like, oh my God, I can't believe he said that. And now my friends are crying and I find myself consoling my friends. You know, and it's just those sort of topics. And that's kind of been the underlying um, stat, like, I guess, I don't know stature for me has been like the consoler to not make my white friends uncomfortable Mm. um and that's you know and of course that stuck with me you know stuck with me for a really long time to this day you know I'm still share that story um in the same in junior high school it's a lot of times where kids are trying to figure out like ooh, what happens if I when I say or when I do this and you can also see within their household what their household actually does look like you know we were studying um MLK and right at the end of the lesson of MLK and they talked about, you know, his assassination and a kid pipes up and says one down 100,000 million to go or something like that. The, the number I don't have correct. I'm pretty sure. And that is after this is, you know, this just happened in um, December, you know, our December dance winning Mrs. Millennium. And now, you know, we're in January and we're talking about Martin Luther King and it just felt like this wave of not having had too many crazy, blatant, you know, name calling, knowing that it existed. And now being like, OK, people hate me because I am black oh and I've won Mrs. Millennium. So I can still be a liked kid, you know, and friends and then the athlete and the things. And it's like high performer. Yeah, like all excellent. But people, like- I'm still down here because I'm black Mm -hmm. and I did think I do think that shaped a lot of how I entered um a lot of conversations as I matured and I entered conversations I don't know how many times you guys I've been friends with you for such a long time we've talked about race I don't think we ever have but it exists all the time Mm -hmm. you know and I've I've obviously knowing Molly in um the professional world and being her roommate time in and time out probably could have talked to her several times about what I've experienced, what I experienced and never experienced. Mm-hmm. I mean, obviously we like to be lighthearted and silly and things like that, but you know, those topics do come up and I, we've been friends for a really long time, but it's just one of those things where it's like, Ooh, this is too uncomfortable. And this will make you feel more uncomfortable if I talk about that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I'm glad you're talking about it now because that seems like a very big thing to hold, like a massive thing to hold for since you were in eighth grade or more. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And you know that I'm sure Molly, speak, I don't know, Molly, you would probably speak to this better, but the idea that you kind of have to like hold that in or like take care of other people versus being like, okay, I need this support or I'm hurting right now. And um, mm-hmm. it's just, you know, the time's up on that. Mm-hmm. You know, and we don't, I don't, I don't want, I don't want anyone to have to hold their pain, own pain like that. And I, I think it so, is, it's, it's uncomfortable in a sense, but it's also really beneficial um, to kind of get over that and hear the story. And mm-hmm. it's part of 
the awareness, you know, this is what this person goes through. This is the way they see their life. This is the way you see your life. Like the only way you can meet up on that and understand is to have those blind spots pointed out to you by the person that lives it. And then hopefully going forward, it's, it's better because, you know, you sort of have that understanding. Um, and so it was great to talk to Allison. She, um, you know, we're inspired by, um, change, you know, using our podiums and our platforms in the running world. Uh, the running world is a very white space, the distance running world. And so we talk about that. Um, and we talk about, um, you know, Allison really elevated the Ahmad Arbery story to the, brought it to the attention of the running world and how important that is and how we don't want it to be just another hashtag that gets forgotten about in a week. So she leaves us with, um, some actionable, um, tips and some a reading list and some sources of media you know this media is so important we have some you know the media that floods you every day kind of reinforces the social structures that exist and so she gives you some media that can kind of open your eyes to other uh, realities um and yeah because yeah. those stories those stories like the story you just told Alicia it gives us you know a, a better insight into not insight that sounds like so that's the wrong word but just like Mm -hmm. wow like we don't know what that is we don't know what that exactly yeah and and for you sharing it's like whoa like I don't you know we don't know what we don't know kind of kind of crap but like Mm -hmm. you know reminds me of the New York Times um I don't know if it was an op-ed or the article that came out what like what it's like for several different people they talked about um what it's like to run while black and I, that opened my eyes in a whole nother level now I would not I didn't think oh I have I'm like ignorant to these issues or anything like that but that those stories really bring it home and I think we've tried to do our part on the this project podcast by showing lots of people's different stories but this issue I think it needs more and it and we need more there's more work, way more work to be done more work I probably could do all of us can do and the more we can kind of like want to hey tell me those blind spots so yeah. I can actually listening do with an open mind is so important yeah, yeah. without threat yeah. without defense being defensive and just like take it in it's mm-hmm. really important mm-hmm. yeah and hopefully societally if we individually we can all do that that just grows we can grow there yeah mm-hmm. it's gonna be uncomfortable but you know let's get uncomfortable we're distance runners we can be uncomfortable that's what we're good at that's right <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I, I'm really grateful for Allison and having this this conversation with her was is more than important to me. And, you know, we felt like, again, the delay and having this conversation, it was worth it. It's not even saying real, real, real delay, but um, because we didn't want to give it just a quick little gloss over. So I hope that um everyone listening really enjoys this podcast can open their ears and just prepare obviously um you know to my people of color um brown people by poc people you know they're this may trigger some feelings so just be ready to listen and uh you know fall into your feelings and be cool with it you know what i mean so um i'm i look forward to continuing these conversations not letting it die here i i'm calling out all of our media publications to do better, not even do better, do more, you know, Mm -hmm. do more in elevating our voices and showing our faces because we exist and running is, is for us too. 
Mm-hmm. Absolutely. It's like it's my magic pill anyways in my life. So I you know, the idea that it's it can be only for white people or something like that. No, no, it's like no, this is too powerful. Running is too transformative and you know, which should be allowed to be shared by everybody. Um and I think you guys talked about a couple of times mentioned the importance of ally allyship and how, you know, like who am I? What am I what can I do? How do I you know, help you help somebody elevate the work that they're doing. And um, Alison talks about how important every all of us are at like, you know, pointing to what the work she's doing, sharing these resources, you know, getting having these uncomfortable conversations, like you said, Alicia, um, that we could all do a little bit more. Uh-huh. For sure. So speaking of elevating voices here, we will share the voice of Alison Desir. Welcome back, everyone. I think this is our episode 20 of Keeping Track, and we have Alison Mariella Desir with us. Um, she is a very multi-talented person known as the nickname Powdered Feet, which you can explain uh, from your website. But Alison is going to talk to us today about some important topics. Um, and she is an activist and endurance athlete, the founder of Harlem Run, and some other um, women's activist groups. And Allison, we want you to tell us all about yourself before we dive into some deeper and very pertinent topics. Yes. Hi, everybody. I am so excited to be here. Um, I'm, yeah, I'm sort of like awestruck that I'm on this conversation with these three incredible women. So just getting my composure. But um, yeah, I'm also, I'm a new mom. My son is 10 months old. I'm an activist. I'm the founder of Harlem Run, Run for All Women, which is an organization that uses running as a vehicle for social change. Most recently, Global Women Run Collective, which is really, it's a very new space, but it's about uh, trying to shift the power dynamics within running, um, wrestle the power away from the men, the white men who run the industry. And and create connections across uh, across the globe in in running and create more women leaders. I started running now eight years ago when I was going through a period of depression, and I saw somebody training for a marathon, and and that really lit a fire in me. And I found, as all of us find, that getting outdoors was really helpful for my mental health. And that one experience transformed so much of my life. So that's mm-hmm. the long and short, but it's been an incredible eight years and. Um, yeah, thank you for having me. That's amazing. Um, I think uh, this is obviously, you know, uh, an incredible time to be talking about this topic that we have you on to connect about because for you and I, uh, another Black woman, two Black women on this conversation, um, this topic is not new, mm-hmm. but you did bring to light um, the issue of um, our, the racial divide within the running community that seems to be an eye-opener for the larger space of the running community, but we belong to that running community. Can you talk a little bit about, um, you know, one, let's talk about the Outside Magazine op-ed yeah. and you writing that in that space, the, the frame of mind. Tell us what it was about and, um, yeah, we'll dive deeper into that. Yeah, so I was approached by Outside Magazine to write this op-ed, op-ed on, I think it was uh, Thursday, the same day that I publicly called out Runner's World. And it was Molly, I forget her last name, but Molly was like, would you be willing to uh, write this piece? You know, we, we hope to get it out sooner rather than later, but we don't want to rush the process. And I was like, got it, Molly. I took like a, a drink 
10 hours. <laughs> Here we go. Because for me, and it was a very emotional space as I was writing it, but it almost felt like like the words had already been written. I was just mm-hmm. like, get it on paper. Mm-hmm. Because, and it's funny because Alicia, we spoke about this, about um, trying to, like it, it was so heavy to write, but I really felt like all of the pain that I had experienced for such a long time and and then looking at this beautiful human being that I brought into this world, like how hard it was to carry him and how many sleepless nights I've had and he's only 10 months old, for him to then be 26 years old and just be shot dead. Mm-hmm. I, I was like, this is just, this is absurd and I, I cannot be silent about this. So mm-hmm. the words poured out of me and the timing, of course, um, it was right before Mother's Day, which I think had an even more of an impact. And I'm going to be honest, like I've, I have two master's degrees. I went to Columbia three times. Like I know how to use my words for an impact. And I think that the vulnerability of the piece and the honesty of it is what a lot of folks really connected with. But even as I'm talking now, like it's, you know, my voice starts to tremble because it's a very personal thing. Like I see Ahmad, I see my son, I see your kids, Alicia. Like, you know, this, we're not talking about things in abstract. We're talking about something that could happen later today when we go outside. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I resonated so deeply with your piece when you talked about when you saw Ahmad running, you saw your son. I shared with a really good friend of mine who... Um, I hold very deeply in my heart as an ally, Lauren Fleshman. Mm-hmm. Um, I talked to her about, you know, just she just checked in on me and I just just went through um, just my feelings. And and that's also very vulnerable to be able to go through your feelings that, that openly, even to your friends. Like you always yeah. keep a reserve of how you doing? We're good. Totally. Um, <laughs> in my space of newly postpartumhood, I've been very... This is how I'm feeling, guys. I just need Good. to do it because I'm, Good. you know, choking. <laughs> but um, with this topic, I remember saying, I see my brother running. My brother's three years older than me, and he literally runs exactly like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and like you mentioned in, you know, your the op-ed, you mentioned it in Flowtrack. You talked about just, you know, how this is not new for us and how we all... Uh, people of color, black people have gone through like that, those moments for them. Yeah. Um, I talked to Tiana Bartoletta and Mm -hmm. we talked about how we have this checklist when we go running, you know, you go running through the neighborhood and you want for, and it's so um, double, it's like double consciousness. It's so subconscious to make sure, you know, you're up the never, Hey, hi, you know, smiling. I'm nice. Don't worry. Exactly. Um, I grew up in a predominantly white neighborhood and, Mm -hmm. um, I remember, you know, going back, obviously in high school and that period of time, it's not so, uh, you're not extremely aware of doing that. But going back after college, I remember being like, oh, I'm the only black person out here running. Right. You know, let me just disarm everybody. Hey, all good. I'm supposed to be here. My parents live right down the street. Exactly. Exactly. You know, can you talk about that, like, bullet point for you when you go running? And, you know, your partner and, you know, people that you've spoken with, because you talked about how you talked with all black and brown, a lot of all. Uh, Did you reach everybody? Um, (laughs) A lot of black and brown runners after this and just kind of talk about that consciousness. Totally. So there's there's I'll talk about that, but it also brought something else in my mind. So as Mm -hmm. as the time has gone on now, um, there's been a question of whether Ahmad was just running or whether he did something, um, you know, whether he he did something to merit his killing. And the idea is 
whether no matter what he was, well, not no matter what he was doing, right? He was not performing a criminal act, but if he was, he still should not have been shot dead for by people who do not have the authority to do so. Not that anybody mm-hmm. has the authority to do so, right? It's not like the police might have the police might have posed an equal threat to his life because we know that mm-hmm. police are responsible for killing unarmed black men. But the idea that somehow we're going to assail his character or question what he's doing, um, and that has an impact on how we care for him, is incorrect. But that said, I do think the simple act of running is why this registers with so many people, because there are so many of us people of color in the outdoor space and we belong there. Right. So for us to be doing something that's so much a part of who we are, that we enjoy just like everybody else and to be shot dead is really why it struck a chord. Now, to your question, I mean, this is it really was it's it's shocking to me that this is shocking to white people. Right. Because black and brown people by POC, we talk about this all the time. Like the minute mm-hmm. the decree came down in New York that you had to run with your with a mask over your face, we were like, oh shit, now we look like criminals, right? Mm-hmm. Because our, our, our faces are covered. Um, mm-hmm. Regularly, I turn on my Strava and I, I do the thing where it sends a text to my husband. I was talking with my husband where um, he, and I didn't even realize he did this. I guess it was so much a part of my consciousness, but he always announces himself when he's running, like he'll make a sound or he'll say like on your left, because the last thing you want to do as a black man is like frighten a white person, right? Because Mm -hmm. there could be deadly consequences. Um, Also, as it relates to my womanhood, I I don't run in a sports bra. Um, I don't want to wear something too tight, too short. There's this constant um, way of looking at myself and assessing to what extent do I look dangerous? To what extent do I look provocative? Uh, before I do something that I enjoy. Um, mm. And I know that um, many women, well, many people can understand the the provocative piece because, you know, across all, all races, we're sexualized in that way. But this additional piece of um, danger because of our race and the ways that when we are killed, we then don't get justice. Because that's mm. also, like, there are white women who get killed while jogging and everybody talks about it everywhere. And those people find themselves in prison. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Well, a word. <laughs> oh my goodness. Yeah. I, I think um, you know, talking about justice and and um not I use this word when we were kind of texting about this, white spaces. Mm-hmm. Feels like, you know, it's not it's our space too, but all these spaces that we I'm talking black, brown people, VI POC people come in and it's already been determined a white space. Right. Well, you that's why it, it's it's like so, and I've said this several times, but we are all in a world that where white supremacy is the modus operandi, right? So mm-hmm. there's nothing to say that there's no space that is inherently white, right? But we know that that a certain space is particularly unsafe because of like white supremacy existing. You know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. I don't know if I said that in the most clear way, but no, like running is in a white space, but we right. know that we have to feel fear and, and mm-hmm. danger and that we put ourselves at, at, at a risk when, when we shouldn't have to. Mm-hmm. I think one of the hardest things about that is um, the representation and where we're represented. Um, yeah. This has been a long-standing topic. I've, of course, talked to my friends Molly and Roe about this topic of, you know, the popularity of running for Black people. And it's not like we don't want to run. It's just that our representation, or we don't run, our representation is not there. Um, you know, uh, the most followed space is runner's world. 
you know, mm-hmm. for running. It's runner's world. But I always bring up the topic of how many black, brown people um, by POC, POC people um, are graced on the cover of Runner's World magazine. Yep. Now, yep. a lot of times we might get, you know, a subtitle or a subheading. Yep. But how many times do we grace it? So it makes it look like, oh, well, black people don't run. For the mm-hmm. longest time I've heard, black people don't run, black people don't swim. Like, yep. no, mm-hmm. it's been deeply thrown at us and the mass public that these are things black people don't do. So if you see them doing it, you know, just saying questions, hand, totally. you know, totally. hands up, don't shoot. Totally. Um, yeah. And I think that's really when my, my call to Runner's World, because obviously it's more than just Runner's World. And I want to give a shout out to Lauren Fleshman, who I also consider a friend, um, a new friend. But Lauren Fleshman sort of expanded my um, my my call out and called out all these other publications too, right? Mm-hmm. Like I saw Runner's World as emblematic of this space in general. But yeah, I mean, the amount of times that I've seen people um, on covers who they themselves had said have done and said really problematic things around race or have contributed mm-hmm. to why we don't see ourselves in those spaces. And mm-hmm. I mean, I have been in Runner's World in the inside cover of it. But if every month I, I have to see a skinny white woman, like what, yeah. what does that really say about our community? And that goes farther into making um, black Americans feel comfortable out jogging. And, you know, I think you do have to start growing that by showing them on the cover and making them comfortable. It's like chicken or the egg too. I feel like they need to make more efforts in that space. Mm-hmm. And we know yeah. we know the research on like you know see it to be it right you want to we want we want women in in c-suite executive positions we want to see this we want to we, we need to see these things in order to be like oh that's me or I, I can aspire to that or I can see myself there and when that's missing um it's it's just yeah you're just leaving this big hole there and like and it's oh that's not for me right mm-hmm. well, I was my first marathon eight years ago the reason why I started was because I saw this black man. He's like one of my friends, like almost six feet, 200 pounds. And he was training for a marathon with team and training. And I was like, okay, black people do not run marathons unless they're East African. And this dude is like not a runner, you know? And obviously my eyes were open to the fact that there's so many of us of different shapes, sizes, et cetera, running. But really I had no understanding. I didn't even know who Ted Corbett was. Like there's there's a long history of people of color running and then mm-hmm. movement and politicizing movement. Like this is our history too, right? But we don't we don't see that reflected mm-hmm. in it. Mm-hmm. asked you, um, can you expand on the part of the article where you quoted, where you, you were quoted, and you said for too long the running community has pretended as though it were possible to keep politics out of running. Mm-hmm. I would love for you to talk more about that here on Keeping Track. Yeah. I mean, there's so many, like, it's such a ridiculous thing when I hear people say, um, like, we should keep uh, running out of politics out of running or, like, first of all, I think the personal is political. Every single thing is political. Mm -hmm. I've said this on another podcast. Every decision we make from the fruit that we buy at the grocery store, like, what is the history of that fruit? How did that fruit get there? Well, it came from a, a developing nation where people were not paid properly for it so that you can have this beautiful fruit to eat. But um, but yeah, I mean, if you think about the Olympics, the whole thing is inherently political. If you think about Castor Semenya, right, how we're also interested in what's in her pants for her to be able to compete. Uh, when we think about the ways in which 
certain people um, like Alephine did not get the coverage she deserved after the Olympic trials. And for some reason, all of the the headlines around Alephine were about her being a child of 32. I'm like, what does her, what do all of her brothers and sisters have to do with this win, right? But like, mm-hmm. and I, I don't know, like I'm looking at that with a critical lens, trying to understand if that was to exoticize her or if that was, I mean, and, and it's a it's a fact, it's a fact, and it's something that she's proud of. That's her family. Mm-hmm. What mm-hmm. does that have to do with this accomplishment? And mm-hmm. there were no similar uh, headlines around uh, Molly, right? Molly mm-hmm. was like, it was uh, that's her name, right? Molly Sadel. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> right. It was that, that she was. It was a first time. So I just feel like all of this, we have to think critically about why our stories aren't being uplifted why we're not um, getting the same opportunities. Like all of mm-hmm. that is politics and the, the playing field is not even, right? Because if, not. if a child is not introduced to this at a young age or if they don't see that, like what Alicia has done, then they may not see them, themselves in this space and therefore running continues to be seen yeah. as white. So mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I'm definitely more upset when people are like, it's just like, let's just let people run. <laughs> yeah, know? no, I think let's we keep, can't undervalue. We can't undervalue um, the role of the media in that. Mm-hmm. And what's, mm-hmm. That's flooding you every day, what you see, what you're exposed to. So that's- it, feel, it feels like when I've heard people say, you know, I wish that person would just stick to comedy or I wish that person would not like, you know, would just be funny or play their sport or blah, blah, blah. It's just like, are you, are you serious? It's like they forgot the say- fact that this person's a human, not a robot. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Living in a society, like, in a culture, in a interacting with that space, shaped mm-hmm. by that space. Yeah. So like, you can't yeah. separate really. Yeah. And, like, if you think about the way that women are undervalued in every sport, but like the kind of demands that you had to make Alicia by putting yourself out there for just recognition and not even you're at, you were asking for some like basic stuff. <laughs> you know mm-hmm. what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like that, that is political. The reason mm-hmm. why the, what is it? The U S women's soccer team um, is not getting paid what they're due. That's because people think somewhere up higher up that men deserve to be paid more. Like that mm-hmm. is, that's political. That's structural. Mm-hmm. For me existing, I am in politics. This is political. This is, this is political. Just existing. Me, a black woman, mom, like everything about me belongs in politics. Technically, if you're going to call politics, politics is a part of humanity. Um, and it's just, it's kind of crazy. And also when I think about people saying, you know, keep sports and politics, you know, separate. I'm like, if there's a governing body to anything, Mm -hmm. it's political. Come on. on. Mm -hmm. I mean, and the truth is like, Everybody who's in sports should be concerned with politics because the money that I'm going to insert myself that we are making yep. does not compare to the money that they're making. Why is mm-hmm. that the case? Like, why mm-hmm. should folks, um, professional elite athletes, be struggling um, because they make such limited amounts from a sponsor who makes billions of dollars off of their image? You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Oh, that that's a whole nother topic we could. <laughs> talk, we'll, we'll talk about that when we talk NCAA and all that. Yeah, yeah but even that. just on that though, like if you look at the like the modern Olympic Games, like there's been ma- like incredible political, you know, change or statements and powerful situation, you know, societal. I don't know the term here, but you know, th- they have used the platform in the right way and has brought about lasting change. And it's like it's always been, it's inherent, right? It's like you bring in oh somebody's cheating or not cheating or you know, gets to play or what country they represent or different things. And um, 
it has always been a part of it. So this isn't new. It shouldn't be new. It hasn't. It's not new. It's not in the last hundred years, anyways. No. So I mean, the very fact that we compete based on country is political. Mm. Yeah, <laughs> like, that's true. That how we compete, right? I mean, but. even so, we had um, Bowden, the uh, fencer. Shoot, I can't think of his his full name. Molly, perhaps, will write in the description. <laughs> <laughs> yes, Harvard. Um, I think it's it's race 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 and Bowden. Um, anywho, a fencer, a white mm-hmm. fencer, um, had he knelt when he you know, won a medal at the Pan American Games a few years back. And he was punished for doing so. Mm. And then after that, they'd come up with a new policy that basically said that you cannot bring any sort of politics into um, your podium moment. And if you do, you you get your medal taken or some sort of um, repercussion will come from that or you won't be able to go and compete on the next team. And it's just how many times are we meant to be silenced when we bring up issues that we're not okay with? Mm-hmm. Again, this is something that is very, um, it's not new to us, right. being silenced. Right. Um, one of the things I think I really, I wanted to talk to you about is um, that place of silence. Mm-hmm. Where, you know, you said you've been there for eight, you've been in the running community for eight years, but mm-hmm. you've been a black woman your entire life, yep. you know? Yeah. What are the places of silence that we can help? Uh, you know, what I really want to do is I want to help our people who want to be allies and those who are not might be able to see why it's important for them to be allies. What What are the spaces of silence in which you've been and where you are now? You know, mm-hmm. obviously being in the running community, talking about this issue, it takes a black man to die just running or even hopping into a construction site, you know, to take a look and then running. Let me tell you, I am queen browser of the neighborhood. I will <laughs> pop in and out of a construction site like, whoa, I love Zillow. I love Redfin. I love Trulia. I am in and out of housing spaces. How many of you guys have done that? There's oh. no reason. There's no merit to, to just because somebody paused, took a look around. Oh, you know, what else could he have been doing? It's still the question of what he's doing. So again, my point is to ask you, what are the places of silence that we can help people recognize you know, this isn't just here and running. It's yeah. broader, but running is a place where we want to claim is a place of unity, and we want it to be. You know, what what can you what can you share with us? Yeah, it's it's an interesting question about silence because I think um, so. We are silenced and mm-hmm. made to feel like we're caricatures that we're like angry black people or that mm-hmm. we're always complaining. And I can go into specifics around that, but I also think the other the silence from white people is also part of this because white people. Um, have the luxury, have the privilege of never having to grapple with their white identity, right? And which is why I think so many people, like so many white people are uncomfortable hearing the words white people, right? Mm -hmm. So many white people don't identify, like they don't have an understanding of their white culture, right? Mm -hmm. Because white culture is the default. White Mm -hmm. culture is American. White culture is the norm. So white people get really shocked when they're forced to confront their racial identity and see, okay, what about me is the whiteness that I love and that makes me who I am? And what about me is benefiting from white supremacy? Mm-hmm. And oftentimes the two things are connected, right? Where um, like white people always see themselves in all spaces, white people, like you, you look through a magazine, you're never not gonna see, uh, you know, mainstream magazines, you're never not gonna see a white person. Um, 
you know that cartoons, like cartoons, yeah. you never have to, you rarely find yourself in a place where you're the only white person. So you just come to accept like whiteness is just normal and it becomes so deeply embedded that you don't question it. Right. So mm-hmm. that is where that is. Uh, and that's not giving white people an excuse, but that's where their silence comes from. And in these moments, that silence is broken and people are forced to look at themselves. Mm-hmm. But what's going to happen, and, and we're trying through these conversations and continuing the work to make sure that people are continually confronted by that reality. What privileges do I have? I don't mm-hmm. deserve this. Like, why do I get the phone calls from the press all the time and other voices aren't heard? You know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. and, but it, 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 it's really an awakening. And white supremacy is, does its job so well because it keeps white people um, silent about that. And then it silences us when, we, when we're facing oppression and we're asking folks to care about us, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, I know that there've been a lot of conversations in running groups in New York and in mostly white running groups where um, a person of color will say something and then a white person will immediately center themselves and start with the white tears, right? I feel really hurt by you making this accusation and I can't, like, you don't even know me. Like, how could you think such a thing, blah, blah, blah. And then suddenly this injured white person becomes a focus rather than the the injury that was committed, yeah. right? Um, I don't even know if I was answering the question, but but yeah, like there's, there's silence on, we are being silenced and then there's a silence that white people are, are complicit in because it protects them in their position. And this mm-hmm. is... Allison, this is a lot of the um, topics that are focused on in some of the books you suggested in your, I think it was the Outside Magazine article. So if this rankles anyone, I suggest they read White Fragility. Um, It really goes into detail about that whole um, dynamic. And I feel like it's kind of essential reading for taking the next step in just um, being more awakened and open to these, uh, to these these experiences yeah Alicia last uh, the last time yeah. we had you were you were kind of talking about that specific situation in well in your own experience um where you because often do you, I don't know if you want to share that Alicia when you used to take care of other people who would be offended mm-hmm. for you yeah. you'd be so worried about them being upset that you wouldn't you wouldn't even worry about how offended you were or hurt or And that's part of the silencing, too, if you wanted to talk about that, because it kind of shuts down the conversation and just removes race from the table then, because it's now about this person's feelings. So you've you've dealt with that personally. I'm sure, Allison, if you have an experience you wanted to use to highlight that. I think about this and uh, like, so I was, um, lots of people have reached out about podcasts, obviously, and this one person reached out and she sent me the pre-interview questions. And this is something that I'm currently dealing with. So if she listens to this, then she's going to be put on. But one of the pre-interview questions was about, and I don't remember the phrasing exactly, but it was about um, she's a she's a woman, and so when she's running, she often has fear around like men who she you know like, and she has a, a fear around um, around being attacked by men. Is that fear similar to the fear that by POC have? And in my mind, mm. I'm thinking I'm a woman, right? Like. But somehow womanhood is reserved just for white people. Mm-hmm. Right? Another question that she asked at the end of my Outside Online, um, Outside Magazine piece, I list like three actionable items that don't require further explanation, right? And she asks me like, well, how can I go about cultivating a white identity separate from white supremacy? And I'm like, read the books, right? But so my thing is, so she asks these questions and I, in my head, I'm like, I don't want to do this podcast. Like, 
Mm. I don't like, I don't have the time to waste, but then I'm like, do I want to have that conversation? Like, I don't want to make things messy. So truth be told, I made up an excuse. Right. And so this is like where there's always this emotional labor happening. And I'm like, Mm -hmm. I don't want to offend her. And then I don't want to seem like I'm ungrateful. Mm -hmm. And when really like your questions are shit and I don't have the patience. You know? And there's there's like remedial reading you could do first and then mm-hmm. dive in. So yeah. it's important to talk about this, I feel like, the emotional mm-hmm. and the burden you feel to like undo racism as a black American. It's just it's it's a lot of layers of stuff you deal with and, and it's emotionally it's, exhausting. It's good yeah. that now the platforms are opening and you're able to kind of talk more about this and put it out yeah. there. And since you're here on this podcast, can you share with our listeners the actionable items? Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. And that's the thing. See, like, I- I'm definitely going to share, but I'm also like, I'm also really giving of my time. And I love mm. these conversations. This is the work that I do. So I'm not saying like, don't ask me questions, but I'm saying like, <laughs> don't ask me dumb questions. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. They used to tell us in elementary school, there's no such thing as a dumb they question. And we're lie. here to say, that's they, a lie. They lied. <laughs> we will tell our children the same thing until they're old enough to realize. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> Um, but yeah, so the first thing is really, so it, it's about this, um, which I think is, is, is new and eye-opening to a lot of white people. So I do have some compassion, although I'm tired, right? But the <laughs> idea is recognizing that you're, um, you have a racial identity, you are white, how is that separate from the privileges that you have and the way that white supremacy makes you think that you deserve to be first, you deserve to be best, you deserve to be seen everywhere. And some really great resources are White Fragility, which is written by Robin D'Angelo. Um, like, uh, she's a white woman. She is like, she, I wish I could meet her. She is. She seems so dope and just like, will say what needs to be said. But it takes you through a lot of what we talked about, about mm-hmm. how the um, fragility is what she calls the response that happens to white people. They get confronted with their race. They feel really upset. They feel guilty. Um, they feel fragile, they start to center themselves, and then they cry or complain, and suddenly the, the top, the, the focus moves away from them. The second book is White Supremacy and Me, um, and that book does exactly what the title says, but it allows you to sort of like peel away the onions and, and really see things for what they are. Mm-hmm. I also think that many, um, another white woman reached out to me and was like, I don't know anything about this subject, but I wanna do something. Should I start a podcast? I'm like, you don't know anything about the subject and you want to start a podcast? <laughs> like, mm. no. Like, what mm-hmm. you need to do is to have, start having conversations amongst white people. Start having conversations around your trusted POC. If you don't have trusted POC, then maybe you start building relationships. Mm-hmm. Step should not be to, like, make this massive uh, move that is going to be coming from the wrong place and it's going to be so ill-informed. Mm-hmm. Um, Another thing is, and this was like a, the second piece, is raising up the voices of people of color. So mm-hmm. how you, uh, like what Lauren Fleshman did, when she echoed what I said, you better believe people heard it. You know what I mean? And that is the power that she has and that she needs, people like her need to continue to yield. Mm-hmm. And then also just see humanity in us, which sounds so basic. But when I see Ahmad, I see my son. Like, and I, I'm just using your name, Molly, because you're on the screen, but Molly, like, when you have a child, like you can see that, wow, my child, imagine my child being in this space. Like mm-hmm. these are like black people, brown people, like we are real people. And it's mm-hmm. not and because our deaths are so often exposed on television and there's so much negative, negative press around us. Sometimes I think like we become caricatures, mm-hmm. um, but like 
we are people just like mm-hmm. you. And your child is like the most precious thing in the world to you. Exactly. And imagine like that most precious thing. It's just heartbreaking, yeah. you know, yeah. can really connect to that. And yeah. not just like, and, oh, this is a hashtag for a week. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Ro, you showed us that um, someone had put up a list of all the hashtags from the last few years and just Rachel how it's Fargle currently. Yeah. Fargle, yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it was, it was like really striking how, you know, people feel like they've done their job by making a hashtag. And it, we want this to be so much more than that. And so, yes. you know, this is why this episode, we talked about having a full episode, even though it was a few weeks later. We don't mm-hmm. want this to be like hashtag a week later, we forget again. Right. Um, so what else, what more can be done and what can be done, do you think, um, in the running space, which is um, kind of where our podiums are, where our our powers are. Yeah. So what I think is actually really, um, really cool. It's not like, that's not the best follow up to this, but this issue uh, extends beyond like, I'm like the normal average runner. Right. And I'm talking to you, incredible women. Um, but yet we can see eye to eye on these things. Right. So these issues, and that's how, like, these are systemic issues. Like they affect everybody. So mm-hmm. I think something that, um, is a really practical place to start is to look around your running group, look around um, fellow race directors, look around fellow coaches. Are all of these people white? Um, It's not because they're the only people who are capable of those roles, right? So start Mm -hmm. to think about why aren't people, who isn't here and why aren't they here? Mm -hmm. Likely the safe is, the, the space is unsafe for them or they've never been given equal opportunity. So what are the ways that you can help um, people think about that and get more people in that space. So for me, like when I look at uh, race directors, um, I, I keep putting this dream out there. Somebody might steal it, but I hope we work together on it. <laughs> but I would love to see the equivalent of um, the Abbott World Majors or like even a better version of it. That's all women race directors, right? And mm-hmm. where we all, and like women coaches, BIPOC coaches are working together to get their athletes in these races. And maybe every few years, some of the races switch out. So it's not just like these golden six races and no other races are a part of it. But like there's this whole streamline where uh, BIPOC and women of color are involved in this process and we're putting money and opportunity mm-hmm. in each other's hands, right? That's that, Those are the kinds of things that I think about with the Global Women Run Collective. Like we can truly create a space that is more inclusive and um so but it starts with something really basic of looking around like in your running club who are the board of directors or Mm. people who get to be leaders and why is that the case you know what i mean Mm -hmm. i've been to a couple of running industry events i'm not in the running industry like um typically but i had into running industry events and I must say it is very male dominated white male dominated and I've literally looked around wow this isn't a place for a new mom or you know this is a very there's a very specific look here and not that you know obviously everyone has their own journey to these places but there's there's something very you know off here Mm -hmm. we make up women make up 60 percent plus of all races Mm-hmm. That makes no sense. Like, yeah. I went to the Running USA conference and I was like confronted by all of these white men. And then mm-hmm. there were a series of microaggressions that I brought to, I think his name is Jeff Matla, that I brought to his attention. Um, and then I noticed that Running USA, as far as I know, n- never made a statement around Ahmaud Arbery. But like, there's a reason why these rooms stay so white and so mm-hmm. male. Like, mm-hmm. They're not going to easily just give up power. We got to take it. <laughs> 
I know this seems obvious probably to us, but can we talk a little bit about why it's important to have that variety and diversity at the top, those perspectives? Mm -hmm. What do they lend? How do they actually make the places better when you have the extra perspectives? Can we talk about that? Because I feel like rather than be threatened, we need to show this makes it better business. It makes it a better appeal. It makes it just better. <laughs> totally. I think that's such an important point, Molly, because this isn't like we just want to pat ourselves on the black on the back because we want to see all these <laughs> cool faces, right? Like for like diversity in any sense, diversity in uh, in race, in in gender, in in ideas brings more ideas into that room, right? Because each mm-hmm. of us limited by our experience and by what we know. So mm-hmm. if we get people in the room who have different experiences, you can appeal to a wider audience. And guess what? Black and brown folks, we spend trillions of dollars on stuff. So Mm -hmm. if you even want our money, then you should put us in the room so that you can engage with us. Right. So it's like there is also like if you are about your money, (laughs) about your business um, to be harsh. Right. Like then you would want as many different opinions working together to make the best possible resources. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of there's a lot of untapped innovation out there. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, there's a lot of like you, you know, like again, if we go back to these rooms where it's uh, like running USA, like think of all the ideas that are left on the table because they're not in that space. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I'm I'm thinking about you know just talking about um, pe- bringing diverse groups into a space. You know, like um, bringing in my own my own you know uh, experience a little bit just about going into the running world, being a professional runner and always feeling like my story and my accomplishments are like the second one. Like, where's, where's the white girl that we can make this story about, you know, um, love her so much, super incredible. But somebody I raced against all the time was a blonde haired, blue eyed girl who would finish behind me oftentimes, but her, the story was about her. They already had written the story so that she could be the one that they'd raise up. And what I disliked so much is she was a great runner, but it was more about who she was dating, which is why they cared about, mm. you know, she was dating a top 800 meter runner, why they cared so much about what she was doing and if they were going to be on the team together. And I'd just be looking like, you guys are trying so hard to not have my face be one that's at the forefront of this place right now. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And I just really quickly want to just say, you know, I think that it really, uh, parents, white parents can do a really good job, a much better job of um, introducing their children to more um, diverse places, like having them not watch cartoons that are just with white children on it and not having them have dolls that are just white dolls. I mean, these are places I understand that everyone's going to live in a, in a diverse community, which I hope that can happen one day, you know, but what do they do if they live in a place that is, predominantly white and that's what they're doing right now can you help us can you help us recognize like what are some of the things you know that you recommend for parents knowing that you have a child and that your child could very well be in a in totally white white spaces quote I'm putting air quotes everybody who can't see me you know yeah I mean I grew up like uh well I went to public school until fifth grade and then my parents put me in private school and so I've been like my Mm -hmm. whole life was really just being one of a few but for parents there's this Instagram account called the conscious kid and it is like it is it is so dope like the stories that they're telling one of the stories that I really I haven't read this book but I just saw it um on their Instagram and I intend to buy it for my son but it talks about how um 
in little kid language, how you may walk into a classroom and nobody looks like you, like you have the curly hair and nobody does, but mm. you're special. Or you might walk into a room where every talk, everybody talks about their lavish vacations that they took over the summer or the meals that they eat and you just have peanut butter and jelly, like you're still mm. worthy, right? So I think making a, a, an effort to, to read these types of stories that allow kids to see people of different um, socioeconomic class, of different race, of different ethnicity, of different upbringing, like that's really important because then these kids, same as if you see it, you be it, like familiarity breeds mm -hmm. kindness, right? Mm -hmm. Like when people, when you see people and you know about people, they're not just those people over there. These are like mm -hmm. people who I know. Yeah. And, and it allows, like, there's also a piece of this about respectability politics that I'm always keeping in my mind. Like people are deserving of humanity, whether they do great things or not. Like if they mm -hmm. just simply it. exist on this earth and quote unquote, I keep, I, I've forgotten many times to put air quotes, so I hope people, <laughs> but, and just consume our resources, quote unquote, like they are still valuable, right? So mm -hmm. starting these stories from an early age, um, I mean, if, if kids are watching TV, like you said, there's so many shows and, and PBS and just continue to showcase all the difference that's in the world so that mm -hmm. we can see difference as an awesome thing, not a threat. Yeah. yeah, and that's what and I feel I like America's ideal is that, right? Like, I'm from Ireland, so I'm from a very homogenous little town in Ireland, and I, I thought America's going to be so cool, and it's going to be so diverse, and I'm going to know, you know, it's going to be, like, it's on the TV and all the telly, and then you're like, oh, no, everyone's just in their own little pockets, and you're just like, ah! <laughs> right, you, so the idea, yeah. No, no, <laughs> the I, idea. You should, I don't know if you've read or have, um, uh, How the Irish Became White. Are you familiar with that book? No, I must look it okay. up. It is so interesting because Irish Americans at one point yes. were like spit on, treated I like know. dirt, were quote unquote the black people. Yeah. But through the uh, the Irish, the Italians, like all of them have been able to elevate to whiteness. Anyway, go on. But that's like. No, but yeah. The, yeah and that's we're from like a so small Ireland. We were oppressed for England or the Great Britain for yep. so long. So we have this like, oh, well, we're oppressed. We, we know what that feels like. And, totally. you know, but then, yeah, then you come to America. You're like, oh, now you just you know now you're in an elevated or not elevated. I don't know if that's the right word, but. You know, it's just like, oh, you're going off your skin color versus like mm -hmm. where you're from or the culture. And um, yeah, it just it's just a different, a whole different reality than what it, it, the ideals are. Does that yeah. make sense? Are they supposed to be? Yeah. Well, it's crazy. Um, Glennon Doyle had just, um, her book mm -hmm. Untamed had just come out. If you guys haven't read it, you need to read it. Yeah. But oh, one of the things that stood out for me was... Uh, just for people to recognize privilege. Privilege is being born on third base. Ignorant privilege is thinking you're there because you, ha you hit a triple. Malicious privilege is complaining that those starving outside the ballpark aren't waiting patiently enough. Mm -hmm. And I'm only reading that because I feel like <clears throat> people, you know, will ex project what they think Black people need to do in order to be at a level of success as if we weren't you know, declared um, basically not human. Because <laughs> mm -hmm, mm -hmm. well, you know, the, yeah. there's mm -hmm. this fallacy, which is like very American, that like we're individual and if you work hard, you can see these results, right? Mm -hmm. So therefore, if you haven't achieved these things, then you're lazy. And each of us, myself included, I know we have very unconscious 
bias against people living in poverty, poor people, right? Like somehow they did it to themselves or somehow like in New York, there's all these articles about um, people who are homeless on the train and how they're just like vectors of disease and get them off the train, right? Like Mm -hmm. these are humans. But anyway, so this this idea of individualism allows us to look at individual at, at uh, individual successes and failures of proof that ex- exists right so mm-hmm. a barack obama he's a black man he was president therefore other people can have these achievements when the truth is there are systemic issues at play and you can't mm-hmm. point to the exception as the rule right mm-hmm. and you mm-hmm. have to recognize that of course um for a particular set of circumstances people are going to be able to achieve, but there are still these, these barriers in place for many folks to, to move out of their space. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. To, to, mm-hmm. So yeah, I think that's, what's really frustrating because people can look at you, Alicia, and be like, what, like, what are you talking about? Like everybody respects her. Like, look, you know, she, it's not so hard to speak out. She did it. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, mm-hmm. I'm sure you were like, I mean, I can't imagine how scary it was for you to pull off what you did, you know? And there mm-hmm. were repercussions to let other people know, don't be Alicia. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. And the thing about that, I'm just, I want to, I know that we've got to wrap this up, but um, Boo. one of the things I wanted to, <laughs> I know, <laughs> I know we can grow, so we can be on this forever. I'm sorry. Um, I, um, what am I saying? On that note, yeah. I really wanted to to just talk about one of the things my my husband in other people, you know, where he's like, oh, you, you're doing so much. You get this done. You got this done. You're doing this. You're doing that. And I say to him, I have to, I have to, I don't get a break. I have to create a space for myself. I already tried to be the person who just would compete and, you know, you yeah. know, ovaries to the wall, make it happen. And it's like, you know, oh, you like that, huh? Ball. It could be balls, but it's not, uh, <laughs> but you know, make it happen. It's just going to happen like that. It doesn't happen like that for me. I want to write a book. I want to write a fitness book. Look at your fitness books across the road. How many people of color are on the, on the cover of your fitness books? I need to make that happen. Alicia has to be the one that's going to dig and I'm going to be in your face. I'm going to make you feel uncomfortable. And I'm going to actually say, when I pitch my book, take a look at your racks. How many people of color do you see on this fitness? I'm not afraid of it anymore. You know, I think that's the greatest thing about age and being yeah. uncomfortable is that, you know, in order for you to get comfortable or more comfortable, you have to be uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. And I think that's, you know, for, again, white privilege. When we talk about white privilege and we talk about the uncomfortability of white people when they talk about these subjects, no, we've been uncomfortable for so long. Mm-hmm. We will yeah. continue to be uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. You know, in order for us to press forward, we have to put ourselves in uncomfortable situations to even get a little bit of a lip, mm-hmm. a little bit of a Alicia. lip in that conversation. <laughs> so... No, um, I think those are the th- yeah. That's yeah. huge that being uncomfortable and kind of embracing it and just sitting in the uncomfortable conversations and situations and um I think that's something people are running from that kind of shuts down the conversation. So I do think um that is an important thing to point out. And like you said, it's something that you deal with all the time, your whole life. So if we're uncomfortable mm-hmm. for an hour for a conversation or for a few hours for, you know, an event like that is that is productive. That is yeah. part of it. And, and you know, Alyssa, I agree. Like I'm the older I get, the less fucks I have to give. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right? um, Beautiful. So <laughs> I am, I am so happy to like have this voice and do what I do. And then there's a piece of me that also realizes like all of this brilliance and energy that we have. Imagine if we didn't have to fight for 
like just simple recognition. Like, mm. like maybe we would be going into space. Like maybe, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? Like where would all of that energy and brilliance, yeah. like there are probably, and that doesn't mean that I think that the work that we're doing is not important. I'm saying mm-hmm. that um, the ways in which white people are able to ignore all of this stuff also leads them to different spaces and opportunities. And there's yeah. this mm-hmm. like, from a counseling perspective, minority stress theory or weathering, you think about just like the daily little indignities and little microaggressions that, mm-hmm. that, that weigh on you. Like it's a lot of emotional, physical, psychic energy. You know yes. what I mean? Yes. So while I'm so thankful for what I do and I think it's really important, I do sometimes wonder about what I would be doing if I didn't have to fight to be seen. Mm. it's like mm-hmm. you start you kind of like catch up to the start line and you're already tired before you even get to the start line. okay now okay I had to fight to get here and now the yep. race is starting it's like come on yep. yeah that's exactly that that right there that's exactly what priv- what being not having mm-hmm. privilege is mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. there's an image of that actually where there's like beautiful image yeah it's like um there's a businessman white businessman in his suit and he's at the starting line and then there's like a a white woman and then there's like a I think it's a a black woman and just like multiple as the intersections go on they have like more and more weights on them as they're ready to Uh take Uh yeah yeah Yeah. well we love it and we love everything that you're doing we I can't thank you enough for making the time and talking about this topic over and over and over, you know, but we need you to, we do, we need you to, and we need for everybody that's listening to pull the earplugs out. Don't think that this isn't you because you are raising your children, you know, to see everybody as beautiful or you don't see color. Don't say that ever again, you know, because it exists, read Read the the books, do your homework. (laughs) And, um, uh, Allison, tell us all the places we can follow and support you. You're a founder of three different uh, <laughs> run groups. We, we tell us. Let's go. Okay, so I'm just gonna for yeah. You, tell us why they call you Powdered Feet. Explain. Oh yeah. Okay, so my nickname Powdered Feet was given to me by my father. My father is Haitian. My mother is Colombian. And Powdered Feet comes from a Haitian Creole nickname that describes somebody so active you never see them, just the footprints of where they've been in powder. So it was my father being like, Jesus, like you are everywhere doing all the things. And that really, um, he was worried about me, but it's really come to be like the spirit of who I am. Mm-hmm. Um, so you can find everything I'm doing at my website, my personal website, which is Allison, A-L-I-S-O-N, M as in Mary, Desir, D as in David, E, S as in Sam, I-R.com. I'm about to kick off a, uh, a tour that was supposed to be in person, but it's virtual, which I think is really amplifying it and the message. But it's called the Meaning Through Movement Tour. It's, it's, uh, the, the goal of it is to normalize uh, conversation, conversations around mental health. Our first session this Saturday is, uh, well, by the time this airs, um, but our first session on May 23rd is about allyship. We have about 700 people registered. Um, follow-up mm. sessions include uh, addressing intergenerational trauma, um, examining power and privilege. So each of the sessions has a conversation, a special guest, and some piece of movement, whether it's yoga or um, running a 5K. So you can find out about that. And yeah, I encourage you to, like I love, like I said, I, I enjoy this work. Don't take my time for granted. <laughs> and, you know, let's continue to elevate folks and, and do the work. 
Yes, awesome. Thank you, Allison. Don't expect Allison to do the heavy lifting. You guys got to help too, but thank you. Your sweat does not go um, unnoticed and unappreciated. So thank you for that and all that you're doing. And um, check out our show notes page because everything we mentioned today, there'll be a link for it from the books, um, the websites, um, everything we mentioned on Instagram posts, it'll all be there. Thank you. Thank you so much. We appreciate your time. Can I I take a screenshot of this moment? (laughs) Oh gosh, I look so bad. I just (laughs) because I look (laughs) This is internal, internal, just for for my archive. Yeah, no. Back on again, will you please? I love. I was smiling the whole time. Got awesome it. thank you for keeping track and with us i just want to say before you guys jump off really quick sorry not to just take the last word that's very the north of me but i just like i just see the effort and i see the potential exhaustion that can come with that and i just want you to just want to like recognize that and just like ah uh, just take your time take your rest but like keep going as well and let us do what we can do to help you guys and all right thank you mm-hmm. <laughs> thanks thank you so thank you guys Shoutouts to What Cheer Writers Club Podcasting Studio, a nonprofit supporting Rhode Island's content creators and where Roshin and I record, and to Rudy Nakashima for our funky outro song. Thanks, guys. Running should be simple. Just put on your shoes and go. And yet, when you try to learn about how to get better at it, especially as you age, you're confronted with conflicting advice, complicated workouts, and confusing nutrition trends that just won't work for you. On The Planted Runner, I'll share exactly how to run faster, longer, and feel great doing it at any age because you don't have time to waste. I'm Coach Claire Bartholik, and I went from not running at all in my late 30s to finishing a marathon in 2.58 at age 42, all on a plant-based diet. I've helped hundreds of runners achieve new personal records well into their 60s and even 70s with science-backed training, plant-based nutrition, and proven mental strength techniques. Each episode of The Planted Runner is like a private coaching session on the run where you'll learn from me and the guests I interview. You'll get actionable lessons to help you become a better runner every week and reach goals you never thought possible. Whether you're training for your first 5K or your 50th marathon, take along The Planted Runner on your next run. Let me show you how your best running is still ahead of you. 